What if someone credible told you that there was $100,000 that was yours? My guess is you'd be excited about that, right? But uh, another thing would be that you would be wondering what to do about it. I, I, I'm sure you would probably think, okay, how do I, how do I get it, right? You're probably not going to respond with, sounds good, thanks for letting me know, and then go on about your day like normal and never ask about it again. Now, news like that demands a response. It does. Well, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for about a year and a half now, and the claims that the author of Hebrews has been making is that Jesus is better Better than what? Better than everyone and everything. He has said that Jesus is a superior prophet to the prophets. He is superior to the prophets, to angels, to Moses. He is a superior priest who has ushered in a superior covenant. He has accomplished a superior work in accomplishing our salvation. This is not one of those types of claims that is to leave one indifferent neutral. It demands a response. We're going to learn more about what that response should be today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 13. We have been saying that after laying the theological framework for the book, explaining how and why Jesus is greater and really camping out in the fact that he is a true and better priest. That is the heart of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews ends with the practical, explaining how one is to live in light of the fact that Jesus is supreme. Last week, we learned that in light of Christ being supreme, we should love others. And who are the others? He tells us the saints, strangers, and those suffering for the cause of Christ We're to also honor marriage and be content with what God has given us. This week, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to learn more about how we are to live in light of who Christ is and the work that he has accomplished in saving us. In light of the fact that Jesus is supreme, we learn from the passage we're going to look at today, first, that we are to imitate the faith of the faithful. Imitate the faith of Faithful leaders. Should say leaders there. Faithful leaders. That's my own mistake. Imitate the faith of faithful leaders. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 7. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Here the the author of Hebrews is calling for those in his audience to remember their spiritual leaders, those who first shared Christ with them, those who first instructed them in godliness. Paul in 1 Corinthians refers to these types of people as spiritual fathers. He says here, the, the, the writer of Hebrews says, remember those people, those who first shared Christ with you, who led you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who faithfully discipled you. He says, consider the the outcome of their way of life. Now, 
What does he mean when he says, consider the outcome of their way of life? This could be referring to the fruit that comes from their ministry. That could be the motivation that he's, he's referring to here to motivate them to be faithful. But remember, persecution is also taking place at this time with this people. Those who first spoke the word of God to these people might have been persecuted for it. So he might be calling for them to count the cost of following hard after the Lord Jesus Christ. We know he mentioned both in the great chapter on faith, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He speaks to those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And he made mention of those who were tortured, who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Verse 37 of chapter 11, being stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Regardless of whether or not he is motivating his readers by the fruitfulness of these faithful people or calling for them to consider the cost of following Jesus when he says consider the outcome of their way of life the writer of Hebrews message is the same he says imitate their faith imitate the faith of faithful leaders follow in the footsteps of those great and godly men before you look to their wonderful example consider how God used them in your life for his kingdom purposes and follow in their footsteps and be faithful believers this is the one thing that we can all be by God's grace in Christ we can be faithful and we should be if we are in fact in Christ notice also in this passage when the author reminds his audience of their leaders while he makes mention of the fact that these individuals taught the word of God to them what's in focus is how they live their lives we've said this before and I know we'll say it again and again because it's emphasized again and again in Scripture. Discipleship is not just done at a table or like this, right? Discipleship is not just teaching biblical principles to people. That's a part of it. But it's also living biblically before people. Al Mohler in his commentary on Hebrews when commenting on this passage of Scripture, said this. Look at this quote. He says, Discipleship consists of living our lives before others in such a way that they learn from us, not only from what we teach, but also from how we live. And get this. How we live determines the effectiveness of what we say. That's very, very important. Our lives should reflect our teaching if our teaching is going to make an impact in the lives of others. That's what the writer of Hebrews is calling for. Here he's saying, in light of who Christ is and what he has accomplished in saving you, you respond by following in the footsteps of the faithful, by both teaching God's word to others and by living God's word in front of others. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Now, some of you may scratch your heads at this verse of Scripture, not because of what it says, not because of the content, but because of its placement in this passage. Some think this verse kind of sounds out of place here. They question how it fits in the context. Well, think about it. The author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers to live like the faithful before them, to follow in their footsteps, to believe and, and teach the same things taught to them and to live the same kind of lives others live before them. Why? Because Jesus has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is eternal and unchanging, and so is his gospel message. So is his gospel call. It has not changed. It will not change in light of the fact that Christ is supreme and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our mission and our calling should be the same as those who have gone before us, as those who have gone before them, as those who have gone before them, all the way back to Christ's disciples. We are called to make this one message known, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. We are called to surrender our lives to Christ, follow Him as Lord, and call others to repent and believe on Jesus and live accordingly. So in light of Christ being supreme, first, we're to imitate the faith of faithful leaders. Number two, we're to not be carried away by strange teachings. Do not be carried away by strange teachings. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he says here, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Let's focus in on those two words, diverse and strange. The word diverse is the Greek word poikilos, which refers to something that is similar but different. This is very, very important. We are to be on guard against doctrines that are different in the wrong ways. You with me? Doctrines that sound good to an extent, maybe they sound Christian, but they foul up something major. Maybe they use Christian language, but the way they define those Christian terms does not line up with Scripture. Maybe they, they use the words sin and salvation, but when they define them, which is what you need to have them do, you need to know who Jesus is and what Jesus they're talking about because they'll throw his name around as well. When you do that, you find out they're communicating something different, believing something different. There have been a lot of best-selling books that have even hit the shelves of Christian bookstores. Sometimes that's the most dangerous place to find books that have gained popularity because they controversially criticize key doctrines that have been believed and taught throughout history that are biblical. You need to be on guard against this type of teaching that are similar but different in key ways, the wrong ways. Teachings that redefine Christian terms to mean something different or omit or explain away certain doctrines that are core doctrines. The writer of Hebrews warns us, do not be deceived by this type of teaching, no matter how popular it may be. Measure everything by Scripture, right? 
It's what we believe when we say sola scriptura. That's why we, we, we praise the reformers for the work they did there. That means scripture is our sole authority. It is our greatest authority. It is the authority by which all other authorities are measured. We need to constantly be going back to what does scripture teach? The word strange is the Greek word xenos. It doesn't mean wacky or weird, though it can be that, but foreign, a teaching that is foreign to the Christian faith. Oftentimes these teachings, they, they gain popularity by being the latest and greatest and, and trendiest of beliefs. Got to be on guard against that. While we don't know all the specifics of the false teachings the author of Hebrews has in mind here, we do know that they were being influenced by the teachings and practices of Judaism under the Old Covenant. A lot of times those old uh, practices that had, that had been accomplished in Christ and, and that had been fulfilled by Him during His earthly ministry, they, they would take those and they would kind of blend those with uh, the Christian faith and, and it's called syncretism, a blending of belief systems to create something that was, that was unbiblical. And so there, there's some temptation here by, by some of them to, to give in to this. But it does have some Jewish elements to it. We'll see that in, in just a moment. Actually, let's look at it right now. We, we learn in light of Jesus being supreme, believers must first imitate the faith of faithful followers. Number two, do not be carried away by strange teachings. Number three, be strengthened inwardly by grace. Be strengthened inwardly by grace. Notice he makes mention of Jewish dietary restrictions here. He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What's being said here is very, very important. Here the writer of Hebrews is talking about the importance of the inward spiritual condition of a person over one's outward spiritual practice. The writer of Hebrews is reminding his Christian audience on what has made the true difference in their lives spiritually. It's not the outward workings of religious ritual, but the inward workings of the Holy Spirit. He says, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by keeping dietary restrictions, not by abiding by empty religious ritual. It's not the religious practice that does the heart good. It's the inward work of the Holy Spirit. The heart is not changed by outward practice. It's strengthened by grace. The audience of Hebrews were being tempted to drift from the teaching that had made all the difference in their lives, and they were being tempted to embrace rituals that were powerless to transform the heart. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Do not drift from Jesus. Do not drift from this message. Do not drift. Do not turn away from. Do not look beyond. Do not add to his person and work. Do not add to this work and this person who has made all the difference in your heart and life. Al Mohler, again, his commentary on this passage says this. Look at this quote on the screen. 
One of the dangers of external laws like the Jewish dietary restrictions is that we tend to overemphasize them. We think we can be justified by keeping them. It seems that the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was addressed were focusing so much on Old Testament dietary laws that they forgot the greater and weightier things, salvation through grace by faith in Christ. Christians, get this, live by grace. And our hearts are strengthened by grace. External matters cannot strengthen or save us, end quote. Believers, we are to live by grace. Our hearts are to be strengthened by grace. We can be guilty sometimes when times get tough, when we're struggling spiritually, to turn to any and every type of help, but to the one who has made a true difference in our hearts and lives, the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. We often fail to realize in the church that the gospel is the difference maker in our hearts and lives spiritually. It's not simply a message we hear once and we say, yeah, 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 I believe that. Pray a little prayer and then move on to bigger and better things. You never move on. You should never move on beyond the gospel. The gospel message is what we need, believers, to live and grow today. We need to grow deeper in our knowledge of the gospel and deeper in our knowledge of the gospel and deeper into our knowledge of the gospel. We need to deepen our knowledge of who God is and who we are and what Christ has done and how there is rescue and relief in him so that we can be strengthened in our faith and conformed, transformed into his image. We often wrongly assume And when we're struggling spiritually, what we need more than anything else is to get more spiritual by doing external, seemingly spiritual things that didn't save us to begin with. What we need more than anything during these times is not to exert ourselves more, but to rely upon Him more. We we need to, at times, not partake of more outward spiritual activity but instead inwardly reflect on who God is and how far we fall short and how far God has reached down to save us and rescue us and bring us to himself through his son. We need to rely upon the God who saved us to work in us, to will and to do, to produce in us a desire to live for Him. We need Him to work in our hearts so that we'll have the strength to work out what He is working in us, work out our salvation and live our lives unto Him. That's the point. Here's the next point. In light of Jesus being supreme, believers should be willing to endure shame in the name of Jesus. It's about to get sobering. Buckle in. Look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Notice how he begins this. We do have an altar. That that might have been an issue for the Jewish Christian audience in this day. That might have been an issue they were dealing with. The Jewish people at this time had an altar. This was before the destruction of the temple. We talked about that when we dated the book. So the earthly temple is still standing. Sacrifices were still being made. There might have been some questioning the legitimacy of the Christian faith because they were without a place. 
like the temple. I mean, they had homes they gathered in, but they didn't have a temple to go and, and worship and gather. They did not have a physical altar, a place of sacrifice. Well, the author of Hebrews lets them know we do have an altar which those who serve in the tent, who's he talking about? He's talking about the priest, right? Have not right to eat. Back during the time of the tabernacle, sacrifices were, were made and at times consumed by the priest. You learn about it a lot in the book of Leviticus about the certain ones that they could consume. Now we'll see in a moment, the offering he's talking about is the special offering on the Day of Atonement. And that was not consumed, the leftovers was not consumed by priests, but by fire outside the camp. But other offerings were. But notice the author lets his audience know that the current priests who work in the temple in their day, who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, while they eat from that altar, they were unable to feast at the Christian altar, which is where? Where's the place of sacrifice for Christians? It's at Calvary, right? It's, it's at the cross. Believers, those of us who are trusting in Christ, we are allowed to go there and eat and, and feast from this altar. And that's just a, a figurative, it's figurative language to mean that we benefit greatly from the work that Christ has accomplished in saving us. We benefit from the life he lived, the death he died, because we are trusting in his person and work alone for salvation. Those who have rejected Christ, they do not feast from this altar. They do not benefit from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So, so we learn here this was not just any type of sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews is referring to. He, he makes mention of this type of sacrifice over and over again. It's, it's, he's talking about the annual sacrifice that, that took place during Yom Kippur, during the Day of Atonement, when the high priest entered into the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, the earthly throne within the earthly dwelling place of, of God in the most holy place. After the blood was sprinkled, the author tells his readers that the carcass of the, the animal was not consumed by priests, but it was taken to be consumed by fire outside of the camp. Outside of the camp was, was a place of disgrace and shame. It was a picture of where we all are apart from Christ because of our sin. That's why a sacrifice for sin was to be made there. The author of Hebrews lets us know that this taking of the carcass and burning it outside the gate was a foreshadowing of the great work that Christ came to accomplish. Look at verse 12. He says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We talked about this when we looked at Mark's account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We talked about it during Matthew's account as well, the Easter before, but it's significant that Christ was taken outside the city, 
outside of Jerusalem to the place of the skull called Golgotha, or it's, it's Calvary in Latin. It's significant because Christ was our sin offering. He was our Passover lamb who was slain outside the gate. Why? Why did he do this into verse 12? In order to sanctify or make holy people through his blood. Here we have another example of why Jesus is greater, believers. We've seen this already and we're reminded of it again and again. We've already said that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. We learned that in Hebrews. They had no power in it of themselves. They could not make one holy. They could not make one right with God forever. That's why they had to be offered again and again. Remember, we said there were no seats in the tabernacle and in the temple that the, uh, the, the priest could sit down on. Why? Because their work was never finished. They were always at work, day after day, because none of the work that they did ultimately saved anyone. What they did was they, they pointed people in faith toward their need of a priest and a sacrifice to come. They provided a, a temporary covering, but they were pointing people in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, God the Son, came from heaven to earth, took on flesh, truly God, truly man, lived the perfect life, laid his perfect life down once and for all, a one-time sin sacrifice for all time that covers sins, past, present, and future forever to all of those who are trusting in him alone for salvation. Christ alone accomplished this great work. He came and he suffered and he died so that we, through faith in him, through trusting in his person and work alone, looking to and trusting in that great sacrifice that he laid down by laying his life down, through that, we can be made holy so that we would experience salvation and have life in Him. In verse 13, we find our main point the writer is making here. Look at it with me in this section. Main point in this section, look at it. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. This here is sobering. The author is making the point that we should follow Jesus, believers, wherever that journey lead us. We should be willing to go with him outside the camp to the place of disgrace and shame. We should be willing to bear some of the rebuke and the shame that he bore. Jesus told us we would if we faithfully followed him. He told us that in John 15. He assured his closest followers that if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Now, we don't like to talk about this, but you can't get past it in Scripture. It's absolutely true. Follow me here. When we come to know more and more about our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, what should naturally result from that is a desire from us to live our lives for him. And when we do that, when we stand strong for Christ, we're going to collide with the world head on. We will experience some of what Christ experienced, disgrace and shame and rebuke and rejection because of our close association with Jesus. And some upon hearing that will say, 
then why do it, right? Why would I want to do that? Associate with this man in, in humiliation and disgrace. Here's why. Look at verse 14. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The author of Hebrews encourages his audience once again to have an eternal perspective. While those who live as the world in the world enjoy the pleasures of the world for a time, it's short-lived. It does not bring happiness that lasts. Why? Because this city we're currently in is not a lasting city. And you all know that to be true, right? For those of y'all that still read the paper, or for those of you who used to, you remember on one page you had the birth announcements, on the next you had the obituaries. We're reminded of it every day. That this is no lasting city. The world and its desires are passing away. Those who are trusting in Christ and live their lives for Him, however, while they may experience trials in this life, they're short-lived in comparison with eternity. The author says, for we have no lasting city. This life is fleeting. However, there is a city to come that is better by far i got to share one more quote from Al Mohler. I know I've quoted him a lot, but this one's the best one of the day, I believe, on Hebrews. Look at this. Our hope is not in the fading city of man. It's in the enduring city of God. We wait for the heavenly Jerusalem. And it's this city for which we can endure persecution outside the camp with Jesus. True. True. Let me end with this. Folks, Christ experienced humiliation and shame and disgrace for us so that we could identify with him. He left the riches of heaven, stepped into the world he created, took on flesh, became one of us, grew up in right relationship with the Father, in perfect obedience to him, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was betrayed and arrested and denied and tried and beaten and hung between criminals at Calvary. He was ridiculed all the way to the cross. And while he hung there, instead of speaking condemnation against his persecutors, he endured shame for them and even prayed for them. He went all the way for us to the cross and from the cross to the grave and back out again so that we through faith alone in Him alone could be forgiven of sin and restored to a right relationship with the living God through Him. He did that for us. Christ became one of us. He endured humiliation and shame for us so that we might have victory over death and life eternal in His name. Have you made Him the Lord of your life? Is Christ your Lord? Have you experienced this victory? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus today? I pray if you have not, you would today. Let's pray together.